Welcome back to another episode of Accounting for Us. My name is Ozamina Ozo Namadim, and I am the first vice president of the chapter. Today we have Robert G. Young. He is a CPA, an MBA, and most recently the CFO for National Geographic. So excited to have you here with us, Robert. Before we get started, do you mind just telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. Um, as you just mentioned, the current uh, incoming CFO, Chief Financial Officer at uh, the National Geographic Society in Washington, D.C. Uh, I'm actually stationed in New Jersey, uh, worked in New York uh, pretty much my, my whole career, uh, New Jersey and New York. So working from home, I'm, I'm in D.C., but I'm, I'm working in D.C., but I'm working from home uh, right now. Prior to uh, the National Geographic, I was the controller at, at the ASPCA. Uh, I did that. I was there for about 14 months. Uh, and prior to that, I was uh, I held a couple of different positions at a at um, environmental defense fund, which is another large nonprofit in in New York. Uh, so I was controller there, VP of finance. Uh, I played an interim. I had an interim CFO role. Uh, for a few months there in between CFOs. Uh, uh, started my career with KPMG. Uh, so we'll have uh, some big five or big four, whatever it's called now, <laughs> experience. Um, uh, yeah, so uh, I graduated from Rutgers, um, both undergrad and, and grad, uh, both Rutgers, Rutgers Business School for grad. Um, uh, as you mentioned, a CPA license in New Jersey. Uh, uh, yeah, that's that's me in a nutshell. That's awesome. Um, and it it's, doesn't sound like you're busy at all. Doesn't sound like like you had a pretty full and um, robust um, career experience. So I think that um, would you mind telling us a little bit about? your NABA story and your involvement with the association? Sure. Uh, my my uh, NABA journey actually started in, uh, in, in undergrad where um, there, there was, there used to be an interview process for student, student members to get in. Like a professional uh, NABA member used to have to interview you uh, before you could just join. Um, so I got interviewed by a gentleman, uh, Carlisle Frazier uh, of the New Jersey chapter. He came to the school, interviewed me like a, it was like a job interview. Uh, I passed. I got a job. I got a, a application to fill out for the organization. Uh, paid, I think it was twenty bucks at the time, the dues. Uh, and then uh, I filled out an application for. Um, well, in that application was an application for a scholarship. I filled out that scholarship application, and um, surprisingly, I, I won a, a national scholarship. Uh, and and ironically, the uh, the the uh, the the year that I won that scholarship was the year the the um, the conference was in D.C. Uh, so with the scholarship, uh, they paid for you to attend the national convention. Uh, as well as they gave us a stipend, they paid, you know, your hotel, uh, uh, airfare. Um, that was actually my first time getting on an airplane. Um, so, uh, 
uh, it was a lot of firsts uh, that NABA uh, allowed for me. But um, I'd say when I got to the conference, um, I, I didn't really know any black CPAs or, or successful black accountants. You know, I just, uh, besides maybe professors or, and things like that. So when I got to this conference and saw the amount of, of black professionals, successful black professionals, it really opened my eyes up to the profession because I, I never thought I was going to be, you know, a CFO or CPA for that matter when I first uh, got into the accounting. Uh, arena. So, so having exposure to NABA very early in my in my uh, uh, college career uh, kind of catapulted me into uh, the uh, I guess the accountant I am today. Awesome, yeah. And I think like one thing that's really interesting about that is that you know NABA still gives out a ton of scholarships to students, and to see that that um, that that has kind of concentrated the pipeline of, you know, potential candidates and really supported students in getting through their academic careers without like with one with less of a financial burden. I think that that is um, something that is amazing that to see the organization continue to do consistently year over year. And as those scholarship funds like continue to come in, we're continuously able to like give more to the community. Um, One thing you said about um, not being able to see like faces that look like you and leadership roles. I know I talk about this frequently, so I wonder, um, like, what role do you think that um, that mentorship has played in your career? Um, and like, do your mentors look like you? Um, yeah, uh, mentors played a a significant role in. Um, in my career, uh, my my main the, actually, I, I think technically, I'd say I have one mentor who's still uh, still my mentor um, was the the professor at, at Rutgers, um, and I didn't know at the time, but he this that was his first. He was an adjunct professor, so he was he had a professional career, and uh, he was teaching accounting classes at night. I was going to school at night, and um, I didn't know that was his first class, but um, I guess what, how we hit it off was, um, you know, as, you know, as, as a black student, you know, most of the time we, and, you know, black males anyway, we get sort of stereotyped by sitting in the back. And, and so when I came in, I sat, you know, right in the front, right in the middle, right in the front of the room, like right in front of him. And that kind of resonated with him. And, and we just kind of, you know, we kind of hit it off from there and we're, we're still, close uh to this day when i got this job the first person i'll call and is him to say okay what what's step number one um he is a he is a black he's a NABA member he's black he's a NABA member uh dan stubbs um so if he hears this uh definitely you know make sure he gets his shout out um but yeah he um he was the one who who told me uh to to make sure i go to one of the big accounting firms um because that was going to uh, be something that stuck with me my whole career. And, and I can tell you this from experience, even interviewing for this CFO job, you know, one of the criteria was, you know, big four experience. So it's, it's amazing that something that early in your career still, um, 
still holds weight, you know, 20 plus years into your career. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, some people, uh, well, well, one, some people will call that a privilege. Uh, but, you know, think of it as like a blessing to think of the amount of experience that I was able to like absorb that we were able to like, you know, take away from that. Um, and so hopefully, um, NAVA is continuing to like, you know, train top talent to really thrive in, in, in public accounting and outside of public accounting as well. But I know that, that a lot of um, industry roles will look at a big four position on your resume and think, um, and, and add some, and it adds value to your resume. So as students like look into long-term roles and destinations, like they should, are you saying that you are recommending that students consider um, consider going big four to see what that experience is like and then um, transitioning away from that? Um, if, you, if your goal is to be an accountant uh, and, you know, elevate through the ranks of an accountant, uh, I would strongly uh, suggest if you have the opportunity to go to a big four to do it. And if not, if you, if, if uh, it's the big four has the name, but the experience, you can get that from, you know, a smaller regional firm. You can get that from a local, a local accounting firm, but I would definitely suggest going to an accounting firm, an auditing firm, uh, or if they do taxes, you know, uh, firms that do taxes, um, just, just to get that exposure, it's it's very good for entry level learning. You know, you know about controls and, and testing and and uh, being objective and and how to interview. You know, controllers and, and, and managers and trying to understand a, a company's financials in a short period of time. The, these roles get you that access, like you know, right out of the gate. So uh, I would strong, it, it's a, it's a very good uh, foundation. So, you know, just like a house, you're building a house, having uh, public accounting experience is a great foundation. Uh, throwing the big four name on, on top of that foundation just makes that foundation a, a little bit more attractive. Awesome. Thank you for that. I think that that's a really excellent uh, insight for students considering, or students or younger professionals considering where their career will take them. Um, so, excellent, excellent point. Can I ask what it, what career accomplishment are you most proud of, and and why? The the career accomplishment I'm, I'm most proud of is probably um, uh, it's probably my my current position. Uh, the, the CFO's position. Um, and I say that because about eight, nine years ago, uh, I, was, I was in a position where I was a, a manager, a senior manager at a, at a, at a firm. And I was, I was very comfortable. I was getting paid, you know, what I thought was a, was a good amount. I mean, it, it was a good amount, but, you know, um, you know, coming from uh, where I was from and, and, you know, the friends that I, you know, that I still have continue to have today, they're all blue collar workers. So, uh, you know, being, you know, having, making six figures, I was, I thought, you know, this is the life, you know, and I got very comfortable. Yeah. Um, 
and realized that I was kind of selling myself short by not uh, uh, continuing to improve my myself, uh, uh, not just financially, but you know, from an education perspective, from uh, a career perspective, um, and you know, having having young kids telling your kids to, you know, don't be afraid to be great, you know, and, you know, telling them to shoot for the start, you know, having all these pep talks with your kids. And then, you know, here I am not, you know, taking my own advice. Um, so that prompted me to go back to school and uh, get my uh, master's degree, get my MBA. Um, and when, when I decided to go back to school, my, my goal you know, from in 2012 was to become uh, a chief financial officer for uh, a, a decent sized firm. So I set this goal a little over eight years ago and, and uh, it, it, it came, it came to pass. Awesome. That is amazing to hear. Um, I'm actually, you know, I, I'm obsessed with goals, like making goals. I, I'm obsessed and intimidated both at the same time, right? I am a millennial and I have high functioning anxiety. So I'm constantly thinking about my goals. Um, can I ask if if the goal that you set eight years ago, um, and this may be for my personal knowledge, but um, was that, you know, we talk about smart goals and how we have like time um, constraints is that was there any time restriction that you kind of gave yourself as a benchmark um <laughs> it's funny you ask it it was um and I, I think it was more of just um me not really understanding the time it was going to take like I just I put this mark and said you know by the time I'm 45 I want to be in this position um I turned 46 on, on Tuesday. So, so I just barely made the, uh, the goal with a month to spare, right? a month and a couple of days. Yeah. Speak it into existence. Happy early birthday or happy belated birthday. Sorry about that. Oh no, it's coming up. It's November 3rd election day. Oh, 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 election day. <laughs> okay. Um, well, happy birthday. Um, we will be celebrating one thing at least. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, it's it's probably the most contentious birthday. Yeah. Um, So I guess earlier this week, I was able to attend the AICPA's Courageous Conversation on Diversity and Inclusion. Um, It was facilitated by uh, Miss Kimberly Ellison-Taylor, Barry Mellencon, and several other AICPA leaders, um, including um, the presidents of each of the affinity networks. So um, Ascend, Alpha, and... Walter Smith, the president and CEO of NAVA. In that conversation, I I personally think about um, diversity and inclusion always through multiple lenses of identity. Um, and so can you speak to what are some of the challenges that you have experienced as a Black man or you, you believe you may have experienced or that are unique to your experience navigating your career as a Black man and how it's like, you know, helped you um, thrive in this and to become a CFO? Um, yeah, I, I'd say um, when you look at my resume on paper, you see my resume, you see my name. And prior to, you know, all the, you know, Zoom and, and you know, all this stuff, all that's all you had was a resume, 
with someone's name and their credentials on it. And I would, I, I tell you, I, I would get, someone would look at my resume and I get an interview in a heartbeat. Um, I'd go into interviews and, you know, walk out of there. Like you, you know, if you nailed an interview or, you know, if you bombed on an interview and there was several organizations I interviewed with and, you know, knew I aced the interview, but, um, you know, for whatever reason, I always forget, oh, you know, you're, you're not going to be the right fit or, you know, we're looking for somebody with already has CFO experience and, you know, things. And it's like, well, you know, I didn't have CFO experience when you, when you asked me to come in for the interview. Um, so it was all, it, I would always get these softball, like, rejections, uh, nothing really on, like, merit. Um, so I, I would liken that to, you know, being black and, and, and I'm also uh, a pretty big dude. So I'm, you know, I'm six, six, one, you know, 260 pounds. And, you know, so I can be intimidating when I walk into a room. So I don't know if that plays, you know, plays a role in it as well. So, you know, I have to make sure I'm smiling all the time so that if I'm not smiling, it doesn't look like I'm angry. Um, you know, that some of those stereotypes, um, but I, I would, I would say just, uh, 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 I, I don't think I got uh, a fair shake when you look at my resume and you, if you would put a white guy in my shoes for these interviews, I'm pretty sure they would have got some of these jobs. Yeah. So maybe there was some bias there and maybe, um, I mean, fortunately, you know, these days we're working through um, removing the biases or, well, a lot of the hiring processes are, are going automated, right? Um, and I know that uh, there has been more articles that have come out about implicit bias within machine technology, like replicating the implicit biases that humans have sometimes. So um, fortunately, like we're at, able to like, you know, unpack that in, in, remove the biases from computer programs slowly. Um, now, maybe that'll be removed in the future uh, and that won't be a worry anymore for those that come behind us. One word that always that I always like to mention whenever we're speaking about diversity and inclusion um, is the word empathy. Um, you know, just the ability to understand the experiences of others and really to put yourself in someone else's shoes. Um, so was there a specific moment for you that where you learned empathy for yourself? I think I think I've always had that um, being a, a, a black man and, you know, what would be considered a, a white man's profession. Um, so, I've you know, I've always had, you know, empathy for, for women, women, you know, in the accounting, uh, in the accounting space, because like I said, traditionally it's a, it's white male dominated. So, uh, women, you know, didn't necessarily get a fair shake. Uh, so I was always empathetic to, to, to that. Uh, and then, you know, throw on top of that, you know, black women or, or brown women. Uh, uh, so I, I always kind of felt that, they may have had it, you know, maybe a little bit worse than 
than than than me as as a black man, you know, in some instances, uh, at definitely with this profession. So so yeah, I think I kind of learned that early on, and and uh, you do see a shift uh, in in those practices. You're starting to see a lot of women accountants. Definitely start to see more more black uh, people as accountants. Yeah, and going back to Kimberly Ellison Taylor, she was the first female. She was the first person of color, um, and one of the youngest people ever to you know to achieve that goal to be you know the face of the profession, um, to be someone that was not a white male. Um, that was absolutely aston- astonishing. Um, so I think that you know there's some part of us that still has like a, an obligation to uplifting community. So I guess um, the next thing is like, what does inclusive leadership look like and look like to you? Um, uh, it's, it's, it's funny you asked the question. The National Geographic's actually going through uh, uh, a phase um, and uh, it's starting with the leadership. So back in August, they, uh, the society hired its first female CEO, uh, Jill Tiefenthaler. Um, when I when I started, so uh, um, as a chief uh, financial officer, we also had uh, they hired a chief legal officer that started the same time I, as as myself, as well as a chief advancement officer. Um, so uh, pretty high, you know, senior leaders in, in the organization within, you know, a few months. And the chief legal officer is of uh, Middle Eastern descent. And the chief advancement officer is a, is a, a Latino uh, a woman. Uh, so we had an all hands with the, with the whole, with the organization when they introduced the three of us together. And the amount of you know applause or the amount of respect that the organization showed with this diverse uh, leadership group because they they had never had a, a you know a, a black person in a senior leadership role so now you have you know a black male a middle eastern uh male and now a, a latin latino woman and on the senior leadership team in like kind of a one fell swoop. So you have this DEI plan out right in front of the organization's eyes and, and the staff, you know, gets to see this and, uh, you know, gets to live this and sort of applaud the organization for being able to include, you know, all different types of races and, and, and uh, genders uh, in leadership roles in the organization. And, and I think we're going to be uh, that much better for it. Yeah, absolutely. That is, that is amazing um, to just <laughs> think about that amount of diversity. I know um, earlier referencing back to the, the ASCPA Courageous Conversation Forum that happened earlier this week, um, Barry Mellencon mentioned, uh, he said, um, diversity, diversity of thought it's kind of like a control that minimizes the risk of like us making poor decisions or organizations making poor decisions. It kind of like 
you know, mitigates groupthink. And if you get everybody in the same room and they have the same um, ideas, then organizations don't make the same, I mean, don't make the best decisions for the organization. Um, and so to have all of you coming from diverse backgrounds, I'm sure that National Geographic is like really just like leading the charge um, in terms of like the out, outcomes and um, business metrics that, that are of concern. Congratulations to, for being one of the, um, the top leaders to really be a representation for people of color within that organization. So thank you. Um, how do you help allies conceptualize like empathy, understanding, race, um, and just like conceptualize these really difficult um, DEI concepts? I would say prior to uh, May 25th, 2020, um, I didn't. It, it, it just it wasn't something that I was comfortable sharing outside of my my circle because um, I, I not that I had uh, not that I had a rough upbringing but you know I didn't you know I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth I, you know we you know, I'm, a, I'm a blue collar you know uh, person at heart you know I'm you know I associate more with blue collar. My friends are still, you know, from grown from kids, you know, still have the same group of friends. They're all, you know, blue collar workers, you know, postal workers, truck drivers, uh, delivery, other delivery, you know, and so being able to express, you know, how I felt or how I thought I was being treated or whatever and in the corporate world just wasn't it, it, it i didn't see any room for that i didn't want to look weak i didn't want to look people to look at me a certain way um but um may 25th 2020 changed all of that um i was able to tell you know a group of you know 80 you know pretty much predominantly white you know, and, and a couple of Latino, no black, you know, on the senior leadership team, on the leadership team that uh, when I'm home and I go to the corner store and I go to, you know, quick check or whatever to get me a coffee, I look like George Floyd. I could have easily been George Floyd um, going to the store. When, when, I, when I leave work, they don't, you know, outside of here, they see a black man. And if I go to the store and I don't have on a suit, I look like George Floyd and I could have easily been, you know, that person. And that just kind of, people just looked at me because they don't see me as George Floyd. They see me as this educated, you know, well-spoken black man. And I'm like, yeah, that's the role I play once I leave the house and get to this building. Once I leave this building, this comes off, and I and I'm I'm just another black man. Um, so so yeah, it, up until now, I've never been able to sort of express that to you know to white colleagues in a workplace like that. So um, it's been it felt like a, a weight's been lifted off off 
you know, my shoulders in a sense. Yeah, absolutely. Because, you know, um, and, and, you know, sometimes people refer to part of that as code switching, right? Is like whenever you come in, like you are leaving a part of yourself or, you know, you are assimilating to a culture um, that doesn't allow you to bring your authentic self um, if it's not inclusive. And so, so now that I'm, I'm so grateful for you being able to share that and hopefully uh, others are being able to share their experiences as well to really, you know, push, push the culture um, forward and really have like some open dialogue around what it takes to provide an opportunity for everyone to succeed within an organization, for everyone to have the same opportunities to succeed within an organization, free of bias. Um, so um, I think hopefully passing over to something that's like more uh, uplifting. <laughs> uh, what is the most important lesson you've learned about resilience uh, throughout your career? I, I'm saying this to say like, you know, uh, you've had to go through so much. Like we've, you just referred to like speaking about your lived experience within your organization as being like a weight lifted. So that means you've had to endure a lot. I am curious to know um, what you've learned about resilience within your career and what you would share with younger professionals and students? Just getting into the, into the correct mind space. When I, when I actually started my career, I was, um, I was a little bit older uh, than, you know, traditional go to college at 18 and graduate when you're 21, 22 and get a job. Uh, you know, I didn't have the money to go to school so I had to work and pay for school at night. So that instilled uh, a different kind of uh, uh, person and, and need to uh, work extra hard for, for everything that I have. Um, and that has carried me throughout my career up, you know, other than that little brief stint where I kind of got relaxed. Um, but um, not not succumbing to, well, I'm never going to be able to do this because, you know, I'm, I'm black or because I'm, I'm a male or because I'm, you know, I'm, I'm big or whatever. Uh, just, you know, just keep going at it. And, you know, uh, eventually somebody will, uh, will give you an opportunity uh, or, or create your own, you know, opportunity, right? Right. I think uh, there's a lot of trends right now saying that millennials are starting their own. Um, well, millennials are really, yeah, starting their own and like their own businesses. The gig economy is like very much concentrated with uh, younger professionals these days. <laughs> um, so I think that that is absolutely um, something that is worth noting as well. Um, so during the COVID-19 pandemic, it seems more important than ever to, you know, really check in and disconnect from, from work. Um, I know personally, I find myself um, having a difficult time separating my work life and my personal life, um, just due to being at home more frequently and working from home. So I wonder, um, a couple of questions, how do you manage your time effectively? Um, and then how do you disconnect from work when you are at home? Um, 
it's a it's probably a little difficult during the week. Um, I find that I am working longer hours because I'm not traveling. So, you know, time I would spend traveling, I'm you know I'm in front of the computer for the most part. Um, I guess the way the way I disconnect, uh, and I guess I know I'm I'm sort of lucky in 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 in, in some respects. Um, the last couple of jobs I've had, the this this current role and and my last role of control at the SPCA, um, the culture and the organizations were you know you know emails and that kind of stuff just didn't happen over the weekend, so you didn't really have to worry about you know checking your email over the weekend, and so now, uh, you know I get a ton of emails all week, and then about you know five o'clock on Friday. My next email probably, you know, won't come in until, you know, Monday morning, early Monday morning, maybe late Sunday night, somebody's finishing up something. So I don't have, I, I can disconnect from work from that aspect. Uh, and it's been like that for the, for the past, you know, year and a half, almost two years. Uh, so it's kind of the culture of the organizations I've been a part of, because I do think because prior to that, even before COVID, uh, I was working weekends, you know, checking the email just in case somebody needed something, I needed to, you know, respond. Um, so it's just been, it's been easier for me, even during the COVID, uh, to just disconnect, uh, you know, Friday, five o'clock, for the most part, I can, I can feel like I, I don't need to look at my emails until Monday morning. I recently read a statistic that said that the average CEO reads about four to five books each month. Um, I know given COVID, that number is probably skewed right now. So um, maybe it's not four or five, but can you, can you share what books you're currently reading or what books um, you would recommend? Man, four to five books a, a, a month. Uh, yeah, that's definitely not me. Well, I'm also not a CEO, right? So, um, uh, the, the one book that I've, that I picked back up, I had read it, uh, some, some time ago, uh, about, about five or six years ago, uh, when I got my first controller role, but I, I, I picked it up again and, and read it and started reading it again. Um, it's, it's the first 90 days. It's a pretty, uh, pretty popular book. Um, and it just gives you, uh, it's, uh, critical success strategies of new leaders at all levels. So it just basically um, tells you uh, look for quick wins, uh, like try to get you in the, in the mind space of that new role um, and kind of let you know your, your first 90 days are critical to what you're going to be perceived as on, in your new role. So, uh, I picked that back up to to get a refresher on that. Um, there was a, a a book that I started reading just because of the role um, and and my role. It's called uh, Strategic Planning for Public and Nonprofit Organizations. Um, it's skewed heavily towards nonprofit organizations, and uh, it's really insightful for. Uh, uh, getting you into the, the 
different mindset of a for-profit versus a, a non-profit organization and how some strategies are, are vastly different um, because of the end goal. Um, so reading those two books, um, uh, I have a, a list of books that I'd like to read. I, I just don't get around to, to reading books often. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And especially not right now, right? You have your family, you have kids at home. It's probably like a lot going on to like consuming your time to find time to just like dedicate to reading um, each night, which is, you know, kind of sad to say, but it's like very much in this time. Like I, I can completely understand. Um, but the two recommendations that I got from you, um, the first 90 days in strategy or strategic thinking for public and nonprofits, I think are both that are, are going to be two that I add to my list. Um, one, the first 90 days, I, I'm transitioning to a new role. So that seems like very, very, very critical right now. So that sounds awesome. And it also maybe um, it's something that we could add to our NABA book club. You know, we host a book club um, for like members professional development and we also talk about dni so we've kind of like been rotating between leadership and diversity and inclusion books so maybe that's something that we can talk about um in one of the non i mean non-fiction self-help um, leadership development books um, so that's great um and i guess the last question that i had for you uh is it, it's it's nava so it's about the motto um the motto is lifting as we climb. What does that mean to you? Um, I, I, I probably should have touched on this earlier in, in the, in the, uh, in the podcast. Um, I mean, I held several roles within the organization, um, the New Jersey chapter. So, you know, starting out in the organization, receiving a scholarship and as a student member um, to uh, becoming the president of the uh, Northern New Jersey chapter of NAVA uh, uh, for a couple of years, a few years back. Um, and during that time, you know, especially as president, we're constantly putting on new, uh, new events, uh, continuing uh, seasoned events, uh, giving out those scholarships, you know, I participated on various committees um, and felt like, uh, you know, I would push these students to fill out applications for these scholarships, you know, not just NABA, but all different types of scholarships. Um, and so, you know, feeling like NABA pretty much helped me get through school, paid my, some of my way through school, um, wanted to make sure, you know, the young folks that are coming through uh, take advantage of those opportunities and, and, you know, hopefully, you know, their path will lead them to, you know, doing the same thing, reaching back um, and, and helping uh, students behind them. Uh, so the, the, the motto, uh, I'm always looking to, you know, not necessarily mentor, but to, um, to talk to, uh, students, um, the ACAP program, I uh, uh, would teach, I, t I uh, gave a couple of courses 
for the ACAP program when we could do ACAP. I actually did a virtual ACAP with the Northern New Jersey chapter in, in June or July. Um, uh, and, and with my son, my son's like, uh, uh, he's in finance. He has an accounting degree, but he's in finance. So, you know, I kind of brought him through the whole NAVA community. Uh, uh, and, uh, you know, he's gotten scholarships. He's gotten, he's been in ACAP. Um, so, so, I mean, that when, when I think about it, I'm, I'm always trying to pull, you know, kids through or help them out. Uh, and I'm still looking up to, uh, you know, some of these some of these season members. I mean, I'm, there, there's a lot I still have to learn about, you know, corporate America, about, you know, being a CFO, you know, you know, being being a dad, you know. Uh, so I'm still, you know, reaching out for for guidance and hoping that I'm dropping some uh, some uh, a little bit of knowledge of. of and, and helping some some, uh, some uh, younger folks that's coming behind. This concludes our episode with Mr. Rob Young. Robert, thank you for your time. We appreciate you and your continued service and dedication to NABA. On behalf of the chapter, we are wishing you tons of success in your new role and know that you are gonna crush it as CFO at the National Geographic Society. And to our listeners, The two book recommendations Robert provided will be linked in the description for those who are interested. If you enjoyed this episode, please like, comment, share, subscribe, tell a friend, colleague. Follow us on social media at Napa Metro DC. And with that, this concludes our show. Thank you.